Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. On this episode of Engendered, we have two guests, Maria Mayo and Nadia Dawisha, co-founders of the online group called Brock Turner for Prison. Maria is a survivor of rape and domestic violence, as well as a practicing attorney who proposed a class on sexual violence and the law when she was attending law school. Nadia is a former professor and worked on Ohio's victims' rights legislation. Maria and Nadia have been running the Brock Turner for Prison Facebook page since June 2016 to address issues of sexual violence and violence against women in the media. And the site has grown now to over 25 administrators, a Twitter and an Instagram account. And Brock Turner for Prison will also be launching a website and a podcast in the near future. We speak with Maria and Nadia today about their Facebook group as a response to the Brock Turner rape case the subsequent recall of the judge on that case, Aaron Persky, and Brock Turner's most recent failed appeal and rape culture in general. Welcome to the show, Maria and Nadia. Hello. Hi. (laughs) Before we get started, I always love to hear how each of our guests came to the work that they're doing. So maybe we could start with you, Maria. What was your journey like as an activist and how did you end up meeting Nadia? So my path to activism was a little convoluted. I'm actually kind of ashamed to say that I originally went to law school to be in-house counsel for a corporation. My background before that was in business. I was never conservative exactly, but I certainly didn't plan to dedicate my life to social justice at the time that I started. Being in law school, some of the classes, but really, um, especially the people that I met there, brought in my mind in so many ways. Another way that I got into activism through this um, that was most consequential for my life was when I realized that the law of rape was not taught anywhere at Carolina Law. So on my first day of criminal law, I noticed that although our textbook had a section on rape, the syllabus did not. So I went to my professor and I asked about it. He actually explained that most criminal law professors choose not to cover rape because it's too triggering to be part of a required class, which is understandable. But I realized at that point that rape law actually wasn't offered anywhere in the law school, including any electives. There was a a class on gender violence, but it focused on domestic abuse and it didn't cover sexual violence that went beyond marital rape. So considering that various lawyers in different roles, there's prosecutors, victims advocates, defense attorneys, who all play a really important part in a survivor's post-assault experience, it seemed like a pretty glaring hole in the curriculum that there was nowhere within the law school to learn about rape. So I actually successfully proposed a class in sexual violence in the law which will be taught um, at Carolina Law for the fourth year and next spring. Um, (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Too many law schools still, unfortunately, don't teach um, rape law. But 
we're just finally getting to a point where the public is really open to education about it. And it's absolutely needed um, for people of all careers, but especially those who will be interacting personally with rape survivors. And it was actually through working on that class proposal that I met Nadia um, when she was doing similar kind of work that I'll let her kind of talk about. And Nadia, you, what was your journey towards feminism and being an activist? You know, I, I really, my mother used to joke that I was a feminist coming out of her womb, basically. <laughs> I was demanding equal bottles from the jump. <laughs> and, and, you know, I really credit that to my mother. My mom actually passed away in April. Oh, and, I'm sorry. Oh, thank you. I mean, she was, you know, she was an amazing woman. She works in a very, very male dominated profession, um, political science. And for a long time, I mean, in two universities that she worked at, she was the only female professor in her department. And she was really a trailblazer in her field. And the amazing thing about her was how many women she mentored and supported in her career. And when you grow up seeing that, that really has a huge impact on you. And it definitely inspired me to advocate for other women in the same way. And I also want to say, too, that, you know, my dad was a very equal partner in the relationship. I mean, there was no second shift in our house. I mean, he supported my mom in her career and shared responsibilities at home. And that was very inspirational for both my brother and I to see. So I was definitely introduced to feminism from a young age. But in terms of how I got involved in sexual assault, that was a bit more of a learning curve for me. I was teaching at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and had students in my class who had been assaulted. And I really, you know, witnessed them struggling in their classes. You know, many of many of them feared walking around on campus. They, they feared running into their perpetrator on campus. And that pushed me to think about educational equity and how students' educations, especially, you know, some of our most marginalized populations, are impacted by violence. So... In 2013, um, when a few UNC students filed a federal complaint with the Department of Education because their cases had been mishandled, because of those students who had been brave enough to disclose to me, I was actually in a better position to understand the issue and advocate around it. And my first campaign was something very simple, which was to mobilize professors to include Title IX language and resources into their syllabi. And Title IX, for anybody who doesn't know, is the educational equity law that protects students from discrimination. And that's how Marie and I connected, (laughs) because we were both doing, you know, classroom syllabi work. And so I wrote two articles for the Chronicle of Higher Education and the Huffington Post, which included such, such language. So that was really my first step into into this work. I also lobbied for the Federal Sexual Assault Survivor Bill of Rights with the organization RISE. And what that bill did was codify the civil rights of survivors into federal law. Right now, I'm working on state legislation in Ohio. So we're taking what we did on the federal level and we're applying it to the state level. And we've been working on our bill for a year. And it's included some pretty comprehensive rights for survivors, such as guaranteeing processing of rape kits, uh, speedy processing of rape kits, because we've heard a lot, of course, about how there's been thousands of rape kits that have been backlogged and sitting on the shelves, not tested. The right of a survivor to have access to a counselor, the right of a survivor to have notification of these rights. So I'm really excited about that. And, you know, it was great to lobby for federal legislation, but I'm really, really excited and honored to be able to make changes for survivors in my own state. So, yeah. So, so Nadia, you were the federal legislation. Mm-hmm that you just referenced, was that 
passed? Yes, that was signed. That was actually the last law that our previous president, Barack Obama, we miss very, very much. That was actually the last law that he signed into law. So it was passed unanimously by both the Congress and the Senate. And then President Obama signed it into law in fall 2016. So yeah, it was really exciting. And now our goal is to get that codified into law into every state. A lot of our listeners will be wondering if something is a federal law and that has jurisdiction over all of the states, why does that still need to be codified at the state level? Maria, do you want to go into that? Because you're the legal person. Sure. Um, (laughs) So a federal law that is referring to evidence and victims' rights is only going to apply to crimes that are charged federally. Most criminal law Mm -hmm. is actually charged at the state level. So to make sure that victims of these crimes are getting these rights, it would need to be guaranteed by each state system. Yeah. A really good example of crimes that are that are prosecuted federally is crimes that happen in Native American reservations, for example. And there's a really good movie called Wind River, which delves deeper into that. That's one of the reasons why it's so difficult for Native American survivors to get justice and why so many Native American survivors are targeted for rape. They have the highest rates of sexual assault in our country because predators know that reservations cannot actually prosecute rapists on their land. So that essentially has made Native American reservations open season for rapists because perpetrators can come in and commit a crime and know that if a survivor wants to report, she would have to do it at the she or he would have to do it at the federal level. So that's a whole other podcast episode because that is a huge injustice in our country. But that is an example of, you know, a crime that is handled at the federal level. Wow. So I'm I'm glad that you brought that up because this, this is something I wasn't even aware of and uh, I'm sure is new to our, our listeners. In coming together, how did you two decide to create this Facebook Brock Turner page? And can you tell us yeah. um, what the goal of the Facebook page is? Maria and I had actually met in 2013 when she was working on her class proposal and I was doing syllabus work. And, you know, we had continued to talk about our anti-rape activism on and off until June 2016. And then the Brock Turner case happened, which completely changed everything for us. So after this pathetic sentence and the viral letter, which I don't know if you remember that, but the survivor in the case, Emily Doe, wrote this incredible, I mean, beautifully written letter about the irreversible effects and trauma the sexual assault and case had on her. And there was a lot of anger around that case. And a couple of days after the sentence and her letter went viral, there was a page that somebody started called Brock Turner for 2016 Olympics. And, you know, I still don't know if that was somebody who actually supported him or if it was a parody page, but we created Brock Turner for prison as a response and it went viral. So yeah, I mean, Maria, do you want to talk a little bit more about what happened as reported in the press? Sure. So, so Brock Turner's a rapist. He sexually assaulted an unconscious woman. She goes by the pseudonym of Emily Doe. It happened in 2015 near a dumpster after a party. Despite the fact that This case actually made it all the way to three felony convictions, which is a rarity for sex crimes. He was then only given a sentence of just six months in county jail in June 2016. He ended up serving only three of those months because of, quote, good behavior. And basically the issue and the big issue in this case was that he was this stampered swimmer, this privileged kid, 
and the judge felt that prison would have had too much of a negative impact on him and so chose to give him this pathetic sentence instead. So what was unusual about the Brock Turner case in terms of why it went viral? Was it because he was a privileged white male swimmer? Or my understanding was the case itself was exceptional only because there were witnesses. So that actually is definitely a big part of it. Unfortunately, a woman's testimony to what happened to her is rarely sufficient to garner a conviction. So definitely the fact that there were two men who witnessed the crime uh, was definitely helpful and probably is one of the big reasons that led to the conviction. But this case is really, it's kind of both an, an outlier and also like representative as well. And the way that works is it's an outlier in the sense that Brock actually spent more hard time with his three months in jail than results from 98% of rapes. So in that sense, the fact that he went to jail at all um, makes this case an overwhelming victory. So it's kind of interesting, you know, that it has sparked such outrage when you consider that. But part of the reason it has is because it's kind of emblematic of a justice system that doesn't really care about justice and that and that it rarely meets out true consequences for perpetrators. I mean, when you consider the fact that our prisons are overflowing with offenders who are serving sometimes decades in prison for nonviolent crimes, it truly is outrageous that the sex offender who committed such a violent crime got just three months in the county jail. But again, it's important to keep in mind that that is more than 98% of other rapes. I think what this case also really highlights is just how much bias there is in the criminal justice system against women and abuse survivors. So I was actually listening to your episode with Barry Goldstein, which was fantastic, by the way, about biases in the domestic violence court system and how judges are far more likely to disbelieve mothers in family court, despite the fact that 98% of mothers who come forward with domestic abuse claims are telling the truth, whereas fathers in family court situations are, I believe, 16 times more likely to intentionally make false reports than mothers. So, you know, from what I've heard from friends of ours who work in family court is that when judges see a battered woman who is crying, who is terrified for her children, versus a calm man, you know, who's decked out in a suit, all of their internal biases are triggered. And that's very similar to what we see with rape cases. You know, it makes me think of Alice Vox. She used to be a New York prosecutor in the 1980s, and she wrote this incredible book called Sex Crimes about these biases. And she had a really great way to describe judges, juries, police, and prosecutors who give rapists a pass and blame victims. And she calls them rapist collaborators. So, you know, who are these collaborators? They're the people who claim that boys will be boys, that we only look at the victim's conduct. You know, what was she wearing? What was she drinking? This is a great line, I think, of hers that she said that rape seems to be the only crime that establishes performance criteria for victims, which is so, so true. But, you know, this is, I think, reflective of what happened with this case, which is that Persky saw, you know, a privileged Stanford student who was a swimmer and Persky by him, by, by the way, also had been an athlete when he was at Stanford. And some of those biases probably got triggered that he wasn't a real offender, you know, that this wasn't real rape. 
you know, real rape happens between strangers and is committed by a stranger jumping out in an alley, a monster, you know, somebody who you don't know. So I think definitely a lot of those biases came to play in that courtroom. I agree with you that the analogy you made with family court and sexual assault is very apt. Unfortunately, there's so much implicit bias against women, not just in terms mm-hmm. of judging, you know, what we wear and and what we look like and where we place ourselves in danger, so to speak, to take responsibility away from the perpetrator. And I think that that's something that really deserves more attention is just how these different biases play out in different arenas, ultimately with the yeah. same effect, which is to not protect survivors and to blame the victim and not hold the offenders accountable. Yeah, for sure. I'm curious, when you started your page, how quickly did it go viral and how many followers do you have currently? It did go viral pretty quickly. With Emily Doe's letter, uh, her victim impact statement, it was incredibly moving, very much so, that um, more people that have heard of this case than probably would have otherwise, which really helped pick us up. We never suspected when we started it that, you know, in a little over two years, our page would have exploded into this vibrant community. We have over 67,000 followers now, which is a huge platform from which to discuss all things rape culture. What's the response from your followers on the Facebook page? Do you feel like there's a way to gauge whether there's growth in um, their understanding about rape culture and how whether that's shifted their minds and actually shifted their behaviors? Absolutely. Absolutely. We, we have seen a lot of things that we used to see very commonly that basically education has eradicated. One of the big ones is prison rape. Don't drop the soap kind of jokes, wishing rape on rapists kind of things that used to be a, you know, daily barrage, honestly. And as we've, Repeated, which we what we try to reply every single time someone makes one of those comments and say why it's damaging, you know, and explain that when we say it's okay for rape to happen to certain people under certain circumstances, that's a slippery slope that leads to people who deserve rape as an idea. It just results in victim blaming. It also keeps people from wanting to send people like Brock to prison because. They look at Brock and and it reminds them of their son and they don't want this kid to get raped in prison. So it's actually not helping from numerous vantage points. And we've seen that just go to a point where it's almost non-existent, like can virtually guarantee that it's not a regular person who engages with our page if they're making those kind of comments now. Were were those comments coming mainly from men or women? Do you remember? So it's actually one that's a sort of closer to a split than some of our other issues because we think varying motivations with men. It's more about an eye for an eye, violence. That's how you respond to violence is with violence, basically. But at the same time, men are also survivors as well. And what I was going to say is a lot of times for women, but also the men who are survivors, a lot of times it comes from like a place of hurt and trauma where they kind of wish it on people who do that to them, did something like that to them. So I would say that it's closer to even. Mm. We're also seeing too, one of the things that I've loved seeing is 
the use of some of our hashtags. So we've created some hashtags as an educative tool, such as uh, hashtag boys will be better, which is a play on boys will be boys. <laughs> so we'll share articles about, you know, men who are standing up as active bystanders or articles on how to talk to your to your son about, you know, consent with that hashtag. And we're starting to see some of our followers use that hashtag, not just on our pages, but on different platforms that they share. Another hashtag that we use is hashtag use the right words, which is a corrective for journalists who, who sometimes engage in rape myths when they report on sexual assault. So we're seeing, you know, some of our followers will message us about like a headline that was used, for example, where um, the headline might refer to an act of rape as sex, you know, a teen had sex with somebody and they'll hashtag use the right words and ask us to share it. So that has been amazing to see. And yeah, I definitely feel that, 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 you know, that's had a significant impact for a lot of our followers and we are changing the dialogue, hopefully. That's great. That's great to hear. So getting back to the Brock Turner case, Judge Persky was recalled in an election in California. Can you talk about how that happened, the origins of uh, what enabled that to happen and um, what the results were and the lessons learned? Mm -hmm. Sure. It took two years um, and a ton of work, but the citizens of Santa Clara County, they were led by Michelle Dauber. She's a, a Stanford professor. And they were successful in getting Persky recalled from the bench. Um, it actually happened in, in a bit of serendipity. Two years to the day after we started our page was the day of the election. It was the first judicial recall in California in 86 years, which I think really demonstrates the level of outrage around this sentence. The campaign was really, really well organized from the get-go. They worked with a lot of different stakeholders, eventually raising over a million dollars and getting over 90,000 petition signatures. So I think it's important to mention that Persky was one of the few criminal judges who had jurisdiction over Stanford. Had he not been recalled, he could have easily continued to fail to bring campus rapists to justice. The recall campaign actually argued that, based on his history of under-sentencing privileged men and male athletes like Brock Turner, women couldn't wait years for him to finish out his term. Women need justice now. And that message really resonated with voters, evidently, because they won by a pretty significant margin. They did face some opposition from people who claim that recalls undermine judicial um, independence. Uh, but there is precedent for kicking out judges who perpetuate rape myths and fail to hold rapists accountable. In 1977, Judge Archie Simpson of Madison, Wisconsin, was successfully recalled after he called rape quote, a normal male reaction to provocative female attire. So there is a history of removing judges for that kind of thing. At the end of the day, if a state's constitution allows for recalls, then the voters should be able to exercise their right to this democratic process. Why do recalls exist if not for this exact reason? What's the process for getting a recall in California or in general? So basically what they had to do was they had to get a petition where they collected 10% of the population of the county. The county's population is nearly 900,000 people. So that was why that goal was set at 90,000 signatures. And it was actually met and exceeded. You're saying that a recall only happens for a particular county because Judge Persky served only that county. 
Correct. Yes. Okay. Maria, so just to follow up on that, what are the exact processes that and steps that one needs to go through first? So Michelle Dower at Stanford, mm-hmm. she obviously has a lot of visibility in the community and credibility. The first step is to get the petition signatures. Yes. Is that correct. Um, correct? And then what was there? What's the minimum number of petition signatures that you need before it can even be considered to be part of a election? I think vote? it was ninety thousand signatures, right? Oh, and so they got the minimum. Yeah. Necessary. Uh, I think they got more than that, but they did get yes, they did they did get that ninety thousand for sure. So, and then after that, does it go automatically on the ballot, or is there another step? I believe they get automatically on the ballot. If this is the case. It seems like that's a big impediment for people in other states, other localities to get that much support. I mean, I guess it depends also on the local laws, Mm -hmm. like the state laws. But 90,000 was obviously very much beneficial from all of the um, press that that case had. And, uh, and, And if without that level of publicity... Would you say it would be nearly impossible to even consider a recall? I don't think anything is impossible. I mean, I, th- I think that, well, first of all, not every state allows recalls. We just shared an article about a case recently of another just ridiculous judge in Virginia who gave a rapist probation for tying up and sexually assaulting a 14-year-old girl. He was an 18-year-old. He had a prior history of sexual assault. He had been charged before, I believe, and he gave him probation. So we were looking into a recall election and Virginia doesn't allow for recall elections. So Maria, I think you had to to take action against that judge. It would be through impeaching, right? Or Yeah, you would actually have to go through the impeachment process similar to if you were going to remove like the governor of that state. Yeah. So it's very hard to do. It is very hard to do. And actually, so I think, you know, this, I think what you're bringing up kind of, it's important because what they did was very, very hard. You know, it wasn't an easy ask. And so it's definitely not something, I mean, you definitely need resources to pull off a campaign like that. Um, I think this really speaks to the importance of organizing in your backyard and connecting with different stakeholders and um, to try to make change. But, you know, in terms of like the lessons learned, this actually, what your question is a good segue into your other question about the lessons learned, um, because I think there's two major lessons to be learned from that recall. So the first, the first lesson is that there's an important lesson to be learned about the nature and effectiveness of different kinds of protests. So in the age of social media, we often see online petitions being employed as a tool for accountability. And I'm not saying those can't have some level of impact, okay? I mean, a campaign that has gotten a lot of signatures using an online petition can employ that petition as leverage to bring media attention to the issue. I mean, institutions and people in power often hate media coverage that highlights and questions their actions and behavior. But there's been some really interesting research by, and I hope I don't mispronounce her name, uh, Zeynep Tufiki. Um, She's a professor at UNC Chapel Hill, shout out, (laughs) and she does research on social movements and technology. And what she's found is that people in power are far more likely to respond and take seriously a civil protest that has a bigger ask. So what she means by this is that government officials, for example, 
aren't as likely to take something like an online petition seriously because they're easy. I mean, we've seen tons of online petitions circulate in the last two years, you know, demanding an impeachment of of a judge, right? But, you know, these are petitions that literally take a second to fill out. So, so they're very easy, but people in power are far more likely to listen to the concerns of somebody writing a letter or going to a town hall meeting or people who have organized a protest for months and years and produce hundreds and thousands of people in the streets. And so when you look at the recall Persky campaign, I agree. It took a lot of resources. It took, you know, a badass professor at Stanford University to lead the campaign, it took a lot of people involved, but it was a very, it was a very big ask. You know, they organized for two years. They got all these signatures. They raised all this money. What they did was extremely hard. And I also think that's the main reason why they did face opposition, but also why they won. I mean, Gandhi said it best. First, they ignore you. Then they laugh at you. Then they fight you. <laughs> then you win. So I think in, in response to your question, it's yes, it is very hard. But I think also those campaigns that are ve- very hard that people pull off, they pull off because they are difficult, because they do take a lot of resources. And I think people in power are much more likely to listen to people who have those big asks. And the second important lesson I think can be learned here, and this is a lesson that is especially important, you know, in the era of the Me Too movement and the number of women we're seeing running for office is that women are no longer going to accept their rights being pushed to the side because of our ridiculous societal belief that the redemption of men is more important than the safety of women. I mean, Persky literally said to Brock Turner, prison would have a negative impact on him. That's what it's supposed to do. <laughs> That's what consequences are about, right? This isn't about, you know, it's a prison. I mean, The criminal justice system, I mean, is not supposed to be in the business of redemption for violent sex offenders. And I'm not saying that we can't attempt rehabilitation in prison, right, and make sure that somebody isn't offending when they leave prison. But at the end of the day, it's about consequences. So, yeah. And there's a really good quote from Michelle Dauber that I think is worthy of being recited. It may be too long for the podcast. You can choose to edit it out or not. Really, really good quote. So she said, you know, men are happy to have women bemoaning the sadness of being victimized by this rapist or that batterer. Those narratives, after all, emphasize the power of men over women. They reinscribe in our consciousness narratives of women being taken, women being violated and killed by men with power, men who were able over and over to do that to women. Men are not happy to have narratives of women taking down or out a man who has power. That is why this recall is so frightening. How are the women who we all know have no power doing a thing to a man who has power? One would sooner believe that the rats had built a nuclear weapon down in the sewers than that women would be able to do such a thing. We can and we are. And so I think that that's very powerful. And I think those are the two main lessons learned from this campaign. That's a great segue into the Brock Turner appeal because yeah. you would think it's like whack-a-mole. You know, you think it's it's a done deal and then all of a sudden he appeals and then he he brings it all back and, and in many ways to me personally makes it even worse with the merits of his appeal or the claim that he had. So can you, either of you speak to that, what happened in the appeal? Sure. So against the charges of digital penetration of an unconscious and or intoxicated person, Turner tried to argue that there was insufficient evidence to prove at what point 
during the attack, Emily actually became intoxicated or unconscious. Those are actually two separate counts. One of his penetration of the unconscious person, one of the intoxicated person. So he was arguing on both points. But this is contradicted by eyewitness testimony that Emily was visibly intoxicated from 30 feet away. So there's certainly no question there. And the appellate court actually did find um, there was substantial evidence that Turner knew Emily was unconscious during the assault. And they also pointed out that he had initially lied to police about whether he fled from the scene to go along with those charges against the charge of assault with intent to commit rape. Um, Turner argued that he did not have such an intent because he only wanted what I think his lawyer just made up the term outer course with Emily. The, the argument was because he his pants were still on and his fly was still zipped that he did not have any intent to commit rape. Of course, this argument conveniently leaves out the fact that he was interrupted mid-attack by the two heroic Swedish men who discovered him. Uh, The appellate court, in fact, said that a reasonable jury could infer an intent to commit rape um, based on those facts. Um, There's nothing to say what would have happened had he not been interrupted. And so with the appeal being denied, um, he will remain on the sex offender registry for life. And what was the response from your Facebook group when this happened? Was there a sort of a general sigh of relief or was there were there people who might have disagreed or you know had some different opinion? Um, pretty much everybody on our page is going all in one direction when it comes specifically to Brock. Um, he's pretty pretty easily hateable because people don't know him personally, and he was convicted, which a lot of people hold as the 100 percent you know standard that it cannot have happened without a conviction. Even though we know that you know the vast vast majority of rapes don't result in that, um, he's kind of one that it, it all kind of goes in one direction, except for his close family and friends. So we definitely had a lot of celebration on our page when both, you know, kind of back to back, the judge was recalled and then Brock's appeal was denied. What about with other rape articles that are shared on the page? Do you find that there's more variability in the response that because, you know, Brock, like you said, was universally deified, you know, and quote unquote, easily hateable. What about if someone more prominent, like a celebrity that they, you know, really enjoyed the art and craft of became a alleged rapist or sexual assault perpetrator? You know, we have had some pushback for a couple of celebrities that are pretty universally loved. So I know um, when we shared an article about George Takai, we received a, some pushback about that because people were saying, oh, but he's, you know, fights for so many causes and he's you know, really into social justice. And we had to say, yes, he can be all of those things. I mean, Bill Cosby was one of the greatest philanthropists out there, right? And he was also a serial rapist. And I think that can be very difficult for people to accept that people who we like and respect and who are good members of the community can be predators because when does it stop, right? People want to feel safe. And I think sometimes when we share these articles, it can absolutely burst the bubble of this just world that we've all been conditioned to to believe, you know, exists. 
So it, we definitely do face some pushback, but I have to say, generally, our, our followers are pretty great. I mean, they, they get it. They're right on board. And I also think with the Me Too movement, there were so many perpetrators, men being outed. Like at one point, it was what, two or three a day? <laughs> it's that's something I think people finally just, you know, got the message that this is really not about the one Brock Turner or the one Bill Cosby or the one Harvey Weinstein. This is a much larger societal problem and that we have to completely uh, rethink how we view gender relations and sexuality in our culture. So it's not just about an individual perpetrator anymore. It's about it's about us. And I think that that's something that we've we've all had to have a reckoning when it comes to realizing that. That actually reminds me of my interview with Tom Digby mm-hmm. in episode 12. He is a philosophy professor and author of a book called Love and War, How Militarism Shapes Sexuality and Heterosexual Love. Okay, uh, we're romance. Gonna need to I, I actually <laughs> we're, we're going to need to read that, Maria. <laughs> let me let me let me make sure I get that title correctly. Yes. It's something like that, and he basically sets up the case that heterosexual love, by its very existence, is set up for failure because of the way men are gendered to be masculine and how masculinity identifies them to be warriors Mm -hmm. and enact rituals of courtship that are conquering and um, diminishing of the wholeness of a woman. And rather than coming to, you know, each other together as equals, there's this hierarchy and and each person has to play their gendered roles to, to make it work. So the Aziz Ansari kind of case, what I, what I read some articles about how this is just what heterosexual relationships are like. Yeah. And what was triggering is that that heterosexual relationships, you know, basically the premise of Tom's book is set up in a way that um, is supportive or enabling of coercion and conquering yeah. and not accepting no for an answer. Yeah, there was a great article, which I highly recommend your listeners um, read if they haven't had a chance to. It's called It was called The female price of male pleasure. And it was in response to what happened with Aziz Ansari and all of these people who were asking, why didn't she just leave? You know, if she was uncomfortable, why didn't she just leave? And what the article was arguing is that women have been conditioned to just accept discomfort in the context of heterosexual relations. And that if you look at the surveys of women's experiences during sex, I mean, it's really kind of shocking just how many women, for example, experience pain during sex. And how few women experience orgasms. Mm-hmm. Touche. Yeah. So it's, you know, women are not often getting pleasure from these encounters. They're often in pain. And the difference between a negative sexual experience for a man and a woman is just, I mean, it's huge. I mean, we're talking women being traumatized and hurt and in pain versus men saying, oh, I wasn't, my orgasm wasn't as like good as it usually is or something like that. And so, you know, that, that to me is, I think why that case was so triggering and because it did, as you said, speak to the reality of, of what so many women um, experience in their lives. That's actually reminds me of a a professor at the CUNY school of public health, professor Mm -hmm. spring Cooper, who is conducting research on sexual agency. And her theory is that the more 
women can engage in sexual agency, the more that can be, I'm probably misquoting her, but the more that can be empowering and create agency for all aspects of her life Mm -hmm. and empower her to greater safety and security in her relationships as well. So I think definitely it starts in the bedroom and, you know, permeates everywhere. Yeah, so I think I think that's definitely important and we definitely should encourage women to be able to assert their agency in the bedroom, but I think we also have to keep in mind that that has to be supported by a larger society being okay with women being assertive because the research has shown that, you know, women's assertiveness is not exactly rewarded in our culture. So women are more likely to be penalized for asking for pay raises. They're viewed as pushy when they do so, whereas men are not. Women are often who run for political office. Um, And we definitely saw this with Hillary Clinton when she was running, you know, are more likely to be looked at as, you know, operators or overly ambitious, right? Often women who fight back or who attack or kill their abuser are penalized by the criminal justice system. I mean, self-defense should be protected in our law, but an alarming number of women, I think it's about 67% of women who are in prison for murder and manslaughter are actually in prison because they defended, were defending themselves against their abusers. So I am all about encouraging women's sexual agency, and I definitely think we should do that, but we should encourage that. But at the same time, our society just really needs to come to a greater acceptance of women doing that in every aspect of their life as well. And, and how do you propose we address rape culture and women's role in perpetuating rape culture? Yeah, actually, can I share a, a, an example my, myself recently of, so this is, I guess we're 10 days maybe or a week from Senator McCain's recent passing from cancer. And I think it was two weekends ago when all of a sudden my inbox in social media started flooding with all these friends and acquaintances who I considered like-minded people, allies in social justice, being very laudatory when the news came that Senator McCain had passed away. And I've been, I've been around for a while, and I remember his history <laughs> pretty clearly. And mm-hmm. I was really incensed. And some people I messaged privately to, and others I just responded on their page and a lot of them kind of were dismissive. And so I, I, I then penned a blog post about the whole issue because for me as a survivor of domestic violence, I see a straight line between progressives who we think are allies in understanding what you know rape culture is and trying and the desire to not perpetuate it and their inclination to lionize people who have questionable mm-hmm. behaviors and have been perpetrators of rape culture. And so to, to see them do that to me makes me feel unsafe because I can't trust them to be able to hold people accountable in the future who I might, you know, who might come to them, whether it's survivors or children who are abused or sexually abused. And I see a straight line between that and Catholic Church and the ability for the mm-hmm. Catholic Church in Pennsylvania to have had over 300 priests molest yeah. thousands of kids over 70 years. That's not possible unless good people are 
coming up with ways to look the other way and deny and minimize. And so to me, that was the epitome of betrayal, is seeing people who should know better, not Mm -hmm. act better. Yeah. Well, you know, we read your article on that, and I really loved what you said here, where you said, yet those same inclinations can also serve as an excuse to look the other way, to deny, to not confront what's right in front of us, (laughs) and to reinforce our confirmation bias that good people still exist and we should celebrate them when they pass. I think that speaks to what we were talking about earlier with the just world theory, where people really just do not want to accept that, you know, people who they admire and like can do bad things because they want to believe that the world is just and it really shakes people up to be presented with information that challenges those views. It, you know, this actually really reminds me of the response to Hugh Hefner dying and passing away this last fall, because we shared, okay, so the, the way the media portrayed him as this icon for the feminist movement, <laughs> because he allegedly freed men and women from sexual repress, repression was just infuriating. I mean, here was a man who treated the women in his house horribly, who objectified women, who openly said that he could never be in a relationship with a woman who was equal to him in terms of intelligence. So that was just really ridiculous. And we actually wrote a status that went viral so that we could correct this myth and highlight the fact that his entire legacy was exploitation masquerading as sex positivity. And I remember, you know, we did get some people on our thread, but then also when I shared it, you know, on my Facebook page and having some friends saying, well, we really should respect people after they've, they've passed away. And I just, I just don't buy that. I mean, I think, I think it's important to correct this cultural myth that, I mean, I think when the news media is framing somebody as that, it's so important to take that opportunity to correct it as soon as possible, not least because we have a 24 seven hour news cycle, right? So yeah, I mean, we felt this, it was necessary to talk about that. And agree that, you know, people don't want to confront the fact that he was a misogynist and abuser who treated the woman in his house terribly. And it was definitely, um, it was definitely very interesting and, and odd that people were not willing to um, have an honest conversation about that. And as did John McCain, when he referenced his wife as a trollop and used the C word to describe her. <laughs> so that was something that was reported, but I don't know if people are reading it and and look, you know, not processing it or not choosing not to read those things. That was very widely reported when it happened. Do you remember mm-hmm. it? I don't actually. Oh, okay. <laughs> so there you go. So the media is a, you know, a big part. So Maria and Nadia, what are your plans for the page Brock Turner for Prison? So we recently um expanded into Twitter, Instagram and Tumblr. We'll also be launching a website with the email listserv and the podcast in January. We are currently in the process of going nonprofit, so if anyone is interested in supporting those efforts, you can find our fundraiser and the pen post on our Facebook page. We also have some future plans, goals. We love to have a convention where we bring people and survivors and followers from our page and get together with activists and really talk about these issues in depth. We love to also eventually um, lobby Hollywood for more honest representations of rape and domestic violence in entertainment media. 
So those are just a few of the things that we have coming down the line. Those sound like great ideas, and we'll definitely have those links on our show notes. So that's a great segue into the closing of our conversation, the engendered questionnaire, which I fashioned after James Lipton's Inside the Actor Studio questionnaire. There's three questions. I don't know if you want to each answer each of the questions or take turns, um, but feel free to just jump in if you have something to share that you definitely want our listeners to hear. First question is, what is at stake in the struggle to end gender-based violence and oppression? So it's important to remember this movement isn't just about individual survivors or even about individual perpetrators. It's about the impact that these crimes are having on all walks of life. Sexual and gender-based violence is a public health epidemic. And what's truly at stake is our lives and the lives of our daughters and granddaughters and our sons and grandsons. So the next question goes to you, Nadia. What gives you hope? So what gives me hope is that we are in such a great cultural moment for this work with the Me Too movement, you know, just bringing together so many survivors. And there's actually been a reckoning that includes naming perpetrators and giving them consequences, which we really haven't seen before. I mean, we've had so many people doing this work on the ground for decades, and they've been doing wonderful work in rape crisis centers and, you know, supporting survivors, giving them resources. But we've been missing that accountability piece. And there was a wonderful study that just came out a couple of months ago, which found that of the high profile perpetrators that have been outed in the last couple of months since the Me Too movement began, the vast majority of them had been held accountable in some way, namely by being fired, suspended, something like that. So we do have a little bit of a challenge in front of us in terms of what to do with these perpetrators, because some of them are trying already timing their comebacks. So we have to figure out what to do in that respect. But there has been accountability for them, which is great. And the other thing that gives us hope is that we regularly get messages from survivors who have finally been able to speak about what's happening to them and who are also holding their abusers accountable. And that has been amazing to be part of. So the last question I'll pose to both of you, what can we do more of, less of, start or stop? So we we definitely need to stop buying the lie that false rape accusations are common and using it as an excuse to treat all rape survivors with suspicion. 95 to 98% of rape accusations are true. That's the same rate as for any other crime. When someone says that they were robbed, it isn't assumed that they are lying until proven honest. No one picks apart every little detail of their story looking for inconsistencies. So why is rape treated differently? Studies have shown that survivors who receive a negative response when they disclose are two to three times more likely to get PTSD than those who are believed. So every single one of us has that power to shape a survivor's healing process for the better. As far as women contributing to rape culture, like I had said earlier, a lot of times that's actually um, when we see victim blaming coming from women, it's coming from a place of trauma, often not being able to acknowledge that what happened to them is really rape or being someone's being punished for something that happened to them. But also, um, especially in, in when I was growing up specifically, um, I read this great book about this called Female Chauvinist Pigs. And it was about basically the sexualization of women where a, a lot of teenage girls and young women, and I was one of them, 
kind of had this idea of being one of the guys and being really raunchy and really sexual. Um, and as that, as a means of empowering ourselves or being sexually liberated. So when we have women who are trivializing rape or being really overtly sexual in an inappropriate fashion, that unfortunately sends the message to men that this is acceptable behavior to women because they're seeing women do it. That's something that really contribute a way that women can really contribute to rape culture. And, and it's sad because they're it's really a coping mechanism to keep from being targeted themselves. So, yeah, I wanted to give some examples of things that we can do more of by talking about what we've been doing with our page. So, um, you know, first of all, just going back in terms of what we can do to stop rape culture and what rape culture is. I mean, rape culture has a very simple definition, um, which is that it's a culture in which sexual violence is normalized and trivialized. And some of examples of that can be, you know, rape jokes that people tell, that people laugh at. I mean, we think it's funny. We're not shocked a lot of the times when, you know, people tell an inappropriate joke um, at, a, at, at, you know, rape survivor's expense. Um, another example of that could be just the very low rates of sexual assault that are prosecuted in our country. I mean, we have rape laws on the book. They're just not enforced. So that's another example of rape culture. And so our response to rape culture is to fight, which we do by providing our followers with very concrete actions, such as calling a legislator, emailing a judge who gave, you know, a ridiculous sentence, um, writing, letter, writing letters to a survivor to show support. We think one of the biggest mistakes that people make in trying to mobilize using social media is failing to provide specific, easy to do actions that people can take. And, you know, part, part of the reason why we think this is because we found that people feel very helpless and disempowered when they're constantly told how bad things are without any suggestions for making them better. And people really respond when they're given an opportunity to be part of the solution. In fact, our followers are so engaged that we've recently created a listserv to send out call to action. So that would include signing and sharing petitions, calling or emailing law enforcement, schools, journalists, companies who are perpetuating rape culture, and reporting people or posts on social media that are contributing to the problem. So we have created that listserv. We're very, very excited about launching that and getting that out um, along with our website in a couple of months. But it's very empowering for survivors and anyone who's an ally to this cause to be able to take concrete actions to fight rape culture. And social media is a perfect platform to connect them to ways that they can do that. So it's really about going beyond awareness. And, you know, awareness is great. It's the building block for greater social change. I mean, people aren't going to take action against the rape kickback blog, for example, if they're not even aware it's a problem. But we have to be able to find ways to use tools to translate that awareness into greater action so that we can really see a societal shift on this issue. There's a great quote by Zora Neale Hurston, which we love. If you are silent about your pain, they'll kill you and say you enjoyed it. We all need to speak out in some way. We all need to shatter the silence around this issue. I mean, we're seeing that now with the Me Too movement. More and more survivors are coming forward. We're seeing great institutions be toppled. I don't know if they're toppled, but definitely be shook up by all these revelations that they've been hiding sexual abuse behind the secrecy of their walls. So, you know, the Catholic Church is a great example. Universities is another great example the Larry Nassar case in Penn State. I mean, this man was abusing young gymnasts for years. And 
nothing happened. Nobody did anything. And he was reported by survivors. So collectively, we all need to make our voices heard. And that could be done in a variety of ways. It could be writing an op-ed to a newspaper. It could be spreading awareness on social media or at the dinner table. You know, that's something I want to say, too, is that all actions, big and small, matter. I mean, we emphasize that a lot on our page. We understand that not everybody has the resources to, you know, launch a recall campaign. Well, go and talk with your cousin about the fact that you're uncomfortable that, you know, he or she said something inappropriate about sexual assault. I mean, that's a great way to make change. Start writing letters, start emailing legislators and judges and journalists to give them feedback and hold them accountable. You know, volunteer with crisis center or even just donate some items. Go to a rally and protest or tell your story. So there's tons of ways to get involved. And I think collectively, if every single person took one action today (laughs) to fight rape culture, eventually we would start to see transformative things. There's a really great quote, which we love. It's an African proverb. Many little people in many small places undertaking many modest actions can transform the world. Thank you. Thank you both. That's a great place for us to close the conversation. Maria and Nadia, co-founders of the Facebook page, Brock Turner for Prison. It's been a pleasure. Yes, thank you. Thank you so, so much for having us on. It's just been an honor to be here. Thank you for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It. The mission of Can Do It is to connect human service providers with the resources they need to empower their clients to be safe, healthy, housed, educated, employed, advised, and secure. Can Do It helps to bridge the service gap and can be found at kanduit.com. Can Do It. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions. Until next time, I'm your host, Terry Yuan. Thank you.